There was a Scottish essayist by the name of Thomas Carlyle, and he once said, Adversity is hard on a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that can stand adversity. In his book, Hand Me Another Brick, uh, Chuck Swindoll echoes this as he says, Few people can live in the lap of luxury and maintain their spiritual, emotional, and moral equilibrium. Sudden elevation often disturbs balance, which leads to pride and a sense of self-sufficiency, and then a fall. It's ironic, he says, but more of us can hang tough in a demotion than through a promotion. And it's it's at this level that a godly leader shows himself or herself strong. The right kind of leaders, when promoted, know how to handle the honor. So we turn in our Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 5. What we're going to see is that Nehemiah was that kind of leader, one who could handle the test of prosperity. And as we look at this good and godly leader today, what we'll find is there are things in his life that can help us to handle honor in our own lives or if we've been put in a place of power or a promotion. I invite you to look with me now as we turn to the second part of Nehemiah chapter 5 and begin picking up where we left off last time in verses 14 through 16. Nehemiah 5, 14 tells us, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me had laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on the wall and I did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. If you were here when we began this series, you'll remember in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 11, we saw he was the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer, as we talked about, was a high position in the government. It was a person who not only tasted the the food for the king and the queen, serving as their, their primary bodyguard, but it was also a place where they were an advisor, a trusted person who was with the king and giving counsel and all the, the things that he went through. And here we see that Nehemiah has moved up the ladder because he's not just an advisor anymore, but he's ruling. He's been appointed as the governor of Judah. He's, he's moved from the Persian palace in Susa back to Israel, to Jerusalem. And there he's been appointed as the governor. And we see one sign of his success in this position in handling his promotion is that we read in verse 14 that he's been the governor for 12 years. 12 years. There are a lot of people who rise to a place of power and they lose it because they abuse their power. They're not able to fulfill the responsibilities. And the fact that Nehemiah has been able to maintain his place as governor with this foreign king shows that he's been able to both please the king, King Artaxerxes back in Susa, but also the people that he's overseen because he's not had any rebellions in the way that he's led. Now, before we talk further about Nehemiah and his place at the top, uh, I want to mention how he got there, something that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, is he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Nehemiah is a person who's proved faithful in the little things. Remember, he started out as a guinea pig in a Persian kitchen tasting food to see if it was poisoned. 
And then he moved higher and higher up in the, the level of trust with the king to the position as cupbearer. And then ultimately to be appointed as the, the governor over Judah to rule this foreign territory uh, that had all kinds of rebellion that was happening in and around it, as we've talked about in the past. And as he shows himself to be trustworthy, he's moved into positions of greater responsibility, and ultimately he finds himself at the top. Now, we know that some people move up the line through other ways. They scratch somebody else's back, they play the game of politics, but there are sometimes reasons that we don't move up in areas of responsibility are because we haven't been faithful in the things that we have been entrusted to us. Uh, there's this, this factor is something we don't like to talk about, it being our own fault. But when you look at how you work, ask yourself if you're somebody who works hard or you're a person who just gets by in what you're doing. When those who are over you supervise you, would they say you're a hard worker? Or would they say you give them a hard time? As you think in terms of the, the work that you do, are you constantly being told what to do or do you show initiative? Are you a self-starter? Now, I know there are times it's hard to get excited about the work we're doing, especially if it seems mundane or, or meaningless. And yet it's even in those little things that are places of preparation for bigger things. We see that in the life of David, David who became king of Israel. As you look at Psalm 78, it tells us this in Psalm 78, 71, and 2. From the care of the ewes with the suckling lamb, so God brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with skillful hands. What we're told is there was a point where this future king of Israel was a shepherd. He was a young man in a forgotten field watching over a few sheep. Nothing that anybody would say was exciting. And yet it was through his faithfulness there. He didn't shirk his responsibility. He didn't complain about his assignment. But instead what Psalm 78 said is he, he did his work with integrity. We hear that word integrity a lot, but what does it really mean? The word integrity uh, has the root word of integer, which is used to describe a whole number, a whole number versus that of a, a broken number like fractions. It, the word means to have a wholeness of character. It's also where we get our word integrated. And this word describes bringing together a various parts into one coordinated system. So what this word integrity means is there is nothing missing. There's nothing missing. As you think in terms of your life, what it describes is that you're the same in the spotlight as you are in the shadows. Ask yourself if that's true of you. Are you a person, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is the same in the shadows as you are in the spotlight? When people look at you, do they say that what they see is what they get? That you're a person who's trustworthy when nobody is watching? So I think in terms of watching, the story's told of a, a man who was burglarizing a house. And he, he broke into this house and he was piling stuff up by the door to steal it. And suddenly he hears, Jesus is watching you. Now, this guy's startled. First, he thought nobody was home. And second, hearing Jesus is watching you, he starts to walk through the house trying to find out where's this voice coming from. And as he walks into a room, he hears again, Jesus is watching you. And he spins around and, and he's relieved because what he sees is a, a cage with a parrot in it. And, and he walks up to this cage and, and he sees that this bird is named Humor. And he goes, what kind of foolish person names a bird Humor? 
And the parrot responded, the same kind of person who names the German shepherd Jesus. (laughs) Now, uh, wouldn't you like to have seen the judgment of Jesus when he got a hold of him for that sin, right? (laughs) As we're talking about being the same, whether we're being watched or not, God is not watching us in terms of being a German shepherd waiting to get us. But the Bible does tell us God watches us. And what he's watching is to see how faithful are we. He's watching to see if we're ready for more responsibility. You can read passages like the parable of the the talents in Matthew chapter 25 or the parable of the minas in Luke 19. And there it talks about how a person who is responsible with what they were entrusted are given more and more responsibilities. And conversely, those who are unfaithful have what they have been given taken from them. And last week, what we saw in Nehemiah 5.10 is Nehemiah was a guy who used his own money to help redeem the Jews. You remember, they were being sold into slavery. And even when Nehemiah was the cupbearer, even when he was back in Persia, he was sending money to redeem and buy the Jews. And then he came to Judah. And he was doing that, continuing the process of redeeming people back. And he was calling the nobles to stop uh, usurious interests that they were charging the, the people. With each promotion... Nehemiah got a bigger paycheck, and he had more and more resources. And what he did was he used them more and more for God and his work. As you look at your life and what God has entrusted to you, would you say that you've been faithful with what you've already been given and thus have shown yourself ready to receive more from God? Now, it may be that you're saying, you know, Roger, I have been faithful. I'm faithful in the way I work. I'm faithful in the way that I I handle the resources entrusted to me. So so why have I not been given more? Why have I not received these promotions and more in order to do more? I want to remind you that we just talked about David. And David was faithful where he was. And his promotion was sudden and surprising. He went from a shepherd boy to anointed as the next king of Israel. And if you've read that passage, you know he then went back and continued to be faithful right where he was. The Bible is full of stories of nobodies who were noticed, who had been faithful and had a sudden promotion. You can read Genesis and look at the story of Joseph. He was in prison, and then suddenly he became the prime minister of Egypt. Amos went from being a farmer and a fig picker to a palace spokesman. You can read about Jael and Judges, this woman who went from a homemaker to a hero. We know the story of Mary, this young girl who suddenly became the the mother of the Savior, Jesus Christ, as she was chosen. The book of Daniel tells us about four young men who were faithful to God, and they rose to places of leadership in a pagan government, not because they played the game of politics, but because they were faithful to God. The Bible is full of nobodies who were noticed, not because they ran in the right circles, but because they did the right things. And we're faithful followers of God. As we talk about following God, we can follow the example of God's son, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this about Jesus. It says, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died to himself before he died on a cross. And as we talk about dying to ourselves, that's not really popular, is it? Especially when we pair it with something like we're talking about today, uh, dying to ourselves in the context of receiving a promotion. As we rise in power and prominence, the world says there should be more perks and there should be more people serving you, not that you serve others. But that's what the Bible tells us. It tells us in Matthew 20, chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this idea of having servants at the top seems really radical, doesn't it? You say, oh, well, that just, that just works in the Bible. That just works maybe in a church situation, but it doesn't work in the real world where I live. I live in a dog-eat-dog world. I'm in corporate America. I'm in a business where you have to crush the competition, where you have to step on other people to get to the top. If that's your model, you're missing it. You're missing it not just because of what God tells us, but you're missing it because corporate America has discovered what God tells us is the way is the way of success. You can read a number of best-selling books, business books by authors like John Maxwell, Patrick Lencioni, Jim Collins. All of them are saying the same thing as the Bible says. Jim Collins has written a number of, of best-selling books. He became famous in his studies of companies. Uh, he wrote a book, Built to Last, and Good to Great was another bestseller, where he said, how do companies go from you know, mediocre to, to good and then the elite of the great? And he did a, he did a study of 1,435 businesses that were, were top-performing companies. And then he said of these over 1,400 companies, and he studied these not just for two or three years where somebody came on, had a hot product, and disappeared. These were companies that had enduring greatness for 40 years or more. And he said those companies that made the elite level out of those really good companies had level five leaders in place. Now, what is level five leadership? Well, he wrote another book on that. And, and among the, the book, in the book, he says, what defines a level five leader are things that we might expect. Things like having the courage to lead, having a, a leader at the top who will make the hard calls. He talked about creating a climate where truth is heard and the brutal facts are confronted. But there was something he found that surprised many. As he looked at his research of these, these elite companies, he said those that build enduring greatness have leaders who do, throw, do so through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. These good to great leaders, he says, are self-effacing, quiet, reserved, and more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. Collins found that these level five leaders do things like saying please and thank you. He said they're willing to do what some might call the menial tasks that lower level subordinates are asked to do. Level five leaders channel their ego away from themselves and toward building a great company or organization. 
They will often sacrifice their own gain for the gain of the company. You know, as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, we've seen all these things so far about Nehemiah as a leader. And as we're looking at this passage today, we find the things Collins describing are true of Nehemiah because here in verses 14 through 15, Nehemiah says, Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid a burden on the people, and they took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. This word fear describes a a reverence and, and a response to that reverence where he said God and his project is greater than me and my personal agenda. And God's people whom he loves are more important for me to serve than to be served. So as Nehemiah is promoted to governor and the privileges and perks that that come with that promotion, rather than receive these things, he gives them back. He says, I didn't do as my predecessors had done. I didn't take these allowances. I didn't put the burden of taxation on the people. He passes on these opportunities, setting aside the extra income in order to alleviate the taxation burden. Now, as Christians, I'm not saying you can't enjoy these things. If you're a man or a woman who's built a company, if you're a person in a place of responsibility with those, those headaches and higher responsibilities should come a higher level of pay and perks. The Bible even tells us that a laborer is worthy of his hire. God isn't saying you shouldn't receive good things if you move up the, the chain. But what he's saying is, as we talked about last week, God is not against us having nice things. It's when those things have us. When those things become our focus, our pursuit, when those things override our care and concern for others. With the privilege, when a privilege comes to you with a promotion, the question I want you to ask yourself is, how do you handle it? What do you do with the things that God has now given to you? Prominence, power, a bigger paycheck. What are you doing with those things? How are you handling those promotions? Those who are godly, like Nehemiah, will gratefully accept them, but they're not controlled by them, and they don't see them as something to serve themselves. Rather, they say, how can I turn the pyramid upside down where the person at the top serves everybody else? Another thing that godly men and women do is they recognize that this is a stewardship from God, and thus they seek to say, how can I use this for God and his glory? As Nehemiah receives these perks, what he does is he he puts them back into serving the people in the project. And as he does this, I want you to note, did you notice that the trickle-down effect happens with those in his administration? As you look at verse 15, it says that the past governors and even their servants domineered the people. That word means to abuse them, to take advantage of them. But now as Nehemiah sets the example, verse 14 says that neither Nehemiah nor those in his administration took food from the people. As this was done at the top, the people down the line copied the example of their leader. You've maybe heard the saying, speed of the leader is speed of the team. And this is Nehemiah. Another thing is uh, the world tells us more is caught than taught. And they saw not just what Nehemiah was saying, but they saw the example of his life. And as you look in terms of your own life, what kind of example are you giving them to follow? 
Now you may be saying, well, you know, Roger, I'm, I'm not in the C-suite at my company. I'm not the CEO, the COO. I'm not a president. I'm not somebody who has these areas of control. But every single one of us are examples to others. If you're a parent, a grandparent, your kids are watching you. What about your peers at school or those you work with? They're looking at you and how you conduct yourself. And yes, if you're in a position of leadership, if you have control of resources in a company or you oversee other people, what are you doing with that stewardship you've been given? Nehemiah is a, is a godly example to his servants and to the others. And it's not just in how they handled their expense accounts. It's also in how they led by example. As you look at verse 16, it says, And I also applied myself to the work on the wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. We've all heard stories of uh, people who were, you know, using insider information to make money, right, on the stock market, or people who had control of where a road would go through, or they had advance notice about something, and they went and bought land in that area so they could get rich off uh, directing the, the project through where they now own property. Nehemiah says, we didn't go out and buy land. We didn't do any of these things that others were doing. He focused on building the wall, not his personal empire. Now he says, I could have done what the previous governors had done, but he wanted to honor God. And again, you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, I don't have access to insider information. You don't have to worry about that. I don't have control of projects. I can't make a roadway go through property I own. I don't even own any property. Well, you still have the ability to have an influence at work through your example. As others watch what you do, I would say you probably have access to the office supplies as well. Are you taking any of those home with you? Are you giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay? There was a man who was being interviewed for a new job, and the applicant was asked, well, why, why are you looking for a new job? What happened at your last place of employment? And he said, well, I was let go from my previous job because I was overly ambitious. I was fired for taking my work home with me. And the interviewer was surprised by this. He said, what kind of company would, would let you go for taking your work home? And he said, well, I work for First National Bank. <laughs> you know, whether we're taking money, materials, inventory, or just taking the time we're being paid for by not doing the job we're supposed to. That's called stealing. And it doesn't matter if everyone else is doing it. It doesn't matter if you're saying, well, the company's big enough, they can absorb the loss. They're not paying me what I'm worth anyway, so I'm just making it up. Remember, we're talking about having integrity, about honoring God and who we are and what we do, being the same in the shadows as we are in the spotlight. As we saw last time in the first part of Nehemiah chapter 5, he didn't break God's law by charging usurious interest as the nobles were doing. And here in verses 14 and 15, he won't take the governor's allowance of food and drink or silver for his salary because he wanted that money to be left with the people so that they wouldn't have this burden. Now again, I want you to hear clearly, God is not against you getting things like this. If you are in a position where there is a bigger paycheck or perks that come with it and you've earned it, it's not wrong 
to have those things. But you have to ask yourself, are those the things driving you? What is wrong is if you take your expense report and you pad your miles or you inflate your your expenses. Think about those sheets you turn in for reimbursement, whether it's your time card or your expense reports, and ask yourself, would God co-sign that paper with you? Would he look at what you put down and say, this is accurate, this is fair? And if it's not, then don't do that. In the next verse, we see Nehemiah not only passed up the perks and privileges that were his, but he even went so far as to pay the bills for running the government out of his own pocket. Verses 17 and 18 tell us, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet all of this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. It's been said that a good leader is a person who will accept more of the blame and less of the credit. And they are also those who quietly sacrifice so that others might have more. As we look at the life of Nehemiah, he once again sacrifices. And you may be reading this saying, well, Roger, why didn't he just stop these big fancy feasts? If it was costing so much money to put on these state dinners, why was he doing it? Well, if you look at 1 Kings 4, 22 through 23, or passages like it, there you see where King Solomon was serving elaborate meals. And I want you to remember, Nehemiah's role was the governor of Judah. And as the governor of Judah, he he was representing the king of Persia. And so what he did there in terms of these state functions represented the king. And if Nehemiah were cutting the corners and not doing the things, he wouldn't have been fulfilling his responsibility. He had a responsibility to his human master here on earth while he was also seeking to honor God and God's people that he was entrusted to oversee. And as Christians, sometimes we struggle with how to balance these two things. How do we serve an earthly master while also honoring our heavenly master? Some Christians just don't do a very good job at it. I was talking with a Christian manager, a a woman who attends here at Wayside, and she was telling me about a struggle she had with an employee of hers who was a believer. And she said, this man is always talking to everybody about all that God is doing through him. And he's always telling me how he's witnessing at work. And he said, she said, Roger, it's really difficult because he's not doing his work. And the customers complain. And, And his other employees don't want to be scheduled. My other employees don't want to be scheduled with this guy because he, he's not doing his job. And she said, eventually I, 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 kind of had a confrontation with this employee and I told him you're always telling me what God's doing through you and she said could could God maybe do something for the company uh, through you and he laughed at me well eventually she fired this guy and rightly so and the reason she had to fire him is because he was witnessing at work now when I say witnessing he, he didn't have a very good witness did he because he wasn't doing his work. Customers were complaining. Fellow co-workers were complaining. And I'm not telling you not to witness at work. You should. I did in all the jobs I had before I was a pastor. 
But one of your main ways that you witness is through the way you work. Where people look at you and they see you're a hard worker and they say, why are you putting in 100% effort when you can get by with less? And you're able to say, well, I do that because the Bible tells me to do that. This is what 1 Timothy 6.1 tells us. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. The way this guy was working, or I should say not working, created situations where this manager was, was, you know, not only was her job in jeopardy, but people were saying, well, you're a Christian, he's a Christian. As you think in terms of the way that you're working, are you honoring God in what you're doing? Now, I wish I could tell you that this manager was the only one that has ever talked to me about something like this, but I've had numerous other supervisors and owners of businesses who will say to me sadly, you know, Roger, I struggle sometimes with hiring other Christians because they sometimes are my worst employees. Isn't that a tragic statement? A Christian saying, sometimes other Christians are my worst workers. And this is what they'll tell me is that because these Christians will come to me, and when I push on them to do more of their job, they will say to me, where's the grace? Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I thought we were fellow Christians. Where's the grace? You know what the Bible says about working for another Christian? It says in the very next verse in 1 Timothy 6.2, And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Now, if you're thinking, gosh, Roger's kind of beating the ha- hammering us pretty hard with all this stuff, you want to know why? Well, it's right here at the end of 1 Timothy 6.2. Teach and preach these principles. Thus saith the Lord, teach and preach these principles. So I'm being a faithful employee of my master. You know, if you work for another believer, you should be working extra hard for them, not taking advantage of them. And listen, as the pastor of this church, there are employees here at Wayside, and I have to talk about this sometimes with them. We have a wonderful, hardworking team, but there have been people in 25 years of ministry as a senior pastor that I've had to fire because as Christians working for a church, they're not doing these things. And so this is something I live with and I deal with just like you do. So as you look at your witness at work, I want you to ask yourself, are you more like Nehemiah where you're being faithful to serve both your heavenly and earthly masters? Now, even you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, I'm, I'm, I'm free and clear. All this stuff you just said for those guys, that's great. You preach it because I work for a non-Christian. And the person I work for lacks integrity. They cheat, they cut corners, they're all this. So none of this applies to me. No, that's not it either. Listen to Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily is for the Lord rather than for men. We work for an audience of one. Brothers and sisters, we serve our heavenly master in the way that we serve here on earth. 
our time, our talents, our treasures, our stewardships for God, not just in what we do here at Wayside or in some other ministry, but what we do in our workplace. God is just as concerned about your integrity and your witness at work and on the base where you serve and in the program you're a part of as a resident or something else as you are as a believer here on a Sunday morning. And in verse 19, we see Nehemiah went about his work understanding that God was the one he was serving. Because as he does all this, he prays in verse 19, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. This brief prayer once again shows not only Nehemiah's humble heart, but his understanding that he had been placed in this position, not to receive the praise of people, but he was seeking the approval of an audience of one. Nehemiah was like a a gifted young musician. This musician had studied the violin under a a world-renowned master. And his, his big public performance had come. The concert was sold out. People were excited and waiting uh, to hear this, this young, gifted musician. And at the end of each arrangement, the audience would erupt in applause because of, of the just beautiful music this mu- musician was making. But he seemed to be unmoved by it. And he got all the way to the last piece of the performance And and the audience rose to their feet and gave him a thunderous standing ovation. And yet this this young musician uh, did not receive the applause of the people. And what he did then is he turned up and he looked into the balcony where his his master was seated. And as he looked up at this this, uh, master, this musician who had been mentoring and training him, uh, the elderly master smiled and he nodded his approval. And only then did this musician smile and accept the applause of the crowd. Nehemiah was like that young musician. He understood that he served a master in heaven and it was God's approval that meant the most to him. May I remind you that as we go through this world, we can seek paychecks and perks and promotions. But all those things are going to go away one day, friends. They're all going to burn up. They're all going to be lost. And at the end of our life on this earth, we will stand before our master. We have an audience of one in heaven in the way that we live and serve. And on that day, as you stand before your master, will you hear the words of Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three? His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's how we should be living. That's what we should be pursuing in this life. We're going to come to the communion table now. As we come to the communion table, we're reminded of what we talked about earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Because in Philippians chapter 2, as we talked about Jesus being the God-man, God who took on flesh and blood. This table reminds us of why Jesus came. Why God humbled himself. Why the creator took on flesh and blood. Why God was willing to leave his throne in heaven to come to earth and walk among us. It was so that he could ultimately go to the cross where he would give his life. Where Jesus would die to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And so as we come to this table today, it reminds us of God and his love for us. We've been talking about the example of Nehemiah. Well, Jesus is our ultimate example.
We were told to have this attitude, to do the things that Jesus did, to emulate what the Son of God did as he gave his life to die for us. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed. And as they're passed, you're going to take two cups. These two cups are together. The top one has the juice, and the bottom one has a wafer, a piece of bread in it. And if you've taken a gluten-free cracker from the foyer, please take both cups, and you can just set that in the chair back in front of you or if you're in the front row in the cup holder next to you. But take both of these elements. The bread represents the body of Jesus, and the cup represents the blood of Christ. And what the Bible tells us is that we have all sinned, and we all owe a penalty of death. And Jesus God in his great love for us came and he gave his life on the cross. He died for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your savior, I invite you today to take the elements. If you're ready to say to God, I'm turning from my sin and to you to be my savior and take and hold these. We'll take them together in a moment, but acknowledge to God that you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who's, who's fallen short. That's what the word sin means to miss the mark. And because of that, we owe a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So take and hold the elements. Say to God, I'm accepting you today as the payment for my sins. And the Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be made a part of the family of God. And for the rest of us who have already taken that step of faith, this is the time for us to look back over the last days, weeks, months, where maybe we've had some sins that we've not yet confessed, and to say to God, I'm sorry for these things. Confess your sins and come with clean hands and hearts. This table is open to all who are believers in Christ. So if you'd like to take communion with us as a believer, take the elements and hold them, and we'll have them together in a moment. Will you serve us, please? Will you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that not only gives us examples of godly men like Nehemiah, who show us the importance of how we live our lives as witnesses out in the world, but we thank you, Lord, for what it points us to, which is you, Jesus, the living word. In John 1, 1, we're told, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it goes on to tell us how you took on flesh and you walked among us. As we read in, in Philippians 2, you gave your life not just to be an example, but to be the payment, to expiate, to pay the penalty of death that we owed. So we thank you, God, for your gift of life. We thank you, God, for the lives you've given us now to go into the world and the workplace and our schools and neighborhoods to be witnesses for you. As we leave today, Father, may we be aware that this is a time where, especially among our Jewish friends, that they are, they are thinking and looking and, and, and seeking you. And may we be willing to be witnesses, to share the good news of who you are, the promised Messiah who's come to save them and us. So thank you again, God, for the gift of life. May we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray.